so much, gentlemen. What a great, great song. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter 22. Luke chapter number 22 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 63. Luke chapter number 22, verse number 63. And what a wonderful night to be with God's people in God's house. And I'll tell you, you just can't get much better than since I have been redeemed. What a great song that is. From right now, today, I have a song I love to sing to one day I shall dwell with him eternally. And that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? From here to there, we've got a song in our heart, a song deep in our soul since I have been redeemed. And if you don't know this great redeemer and your sins have never been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no better night than tonight. And there's no better place than right here to get his settled by grace through faith, trusting Jesus to wash your sins away. What a great, great thing to know. What a, what a joy it brings. I have a song I love to sing. You have your Bible tonight to the book of Luke in chapter number 22. Uh, later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible gives the antidote to the Christian who's going through discouragement and, and defeat in their life. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 and 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Have you ever done this? You know, that's a very specific verse, and it's a very powerful verse. Because the Bible says that if you're not going to be discouraged and defeated, and, and if I'm not going to get weary and faint in well-doing, then the Bible gives a very specific answer to this. The Word of God tells us to consider Him. No, it doesn't simply say hear a song about him or it doesn't simply say hear a message about him or or read a book about him. But the Bible says there needs to be time in your life and mine where the brakes come on and everything else stops and we do nothing but consider him. But it's more specific than that, isn't it? It's not just consider him, but the Bible says go to Calvary and consider the contradiction of sinners against himself. Have you ever stopped to do this? You know, if we really were to start tonight, we could spend the evening and, and we would come up with quite a long list of the contradiction of sinners against Jesus. In other words, everything about the cross was backwards. Everything that should have been wasn't and everything that should have, should not have been, it, it all seems to happen. I mean, the creator dies at the hands of creation. The one who is pure dies at the hands of the evil. Why, the perfect son of God is dying at the hands of those that are as worthless and sinful as they can be. You understand, everything about Calvary is backwards. Because on that cross, I'm the one who should pay the price for my sins. I'm the one who should suffer and die for the crimes that I have done against God. And, and yet it's all backwards, isn't it? There is only one person that ever put a footprint on the soil of this earth who never should have gone to the cross. And yet there's Jesus hanging there dying for you and for me. It is the massive contradiction of sinners against himself. Everything is reversed. Everything is backwards. And yet when you put Hebrews 12 and 3 together, the Bible tells us that lest you become weary and lest I become faint. And, and it's fascinating to me, it says in our minds, not just in our flesh, in our bodies, but in our minds. Because on the outside, sometimes we're all good, are we not? At turning it on cruise control and, and why we know what's required of us and we know what's expected of us. And that is especially true in a ministry like Fairhaven Baptist Church. 
so we can do it on the outside. We can teach that class. Why We can sing in that choir. We can work that bus route. We can do everything that is required of us on the outside. But that doesn't mean that our minds and our hearts are set on him. And so the Bible says, lest you become weary and faint in your minds, go to Calvary. And not just go to Calvary and let first love rule your heart, but even more so, go to Calvary and just stop everything and consider the great contradictions of the cross and consider the price that was paid when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the pure Lamb of God, took my sins in his body on the tree. Consider the contradictions of the cross. And for me, that contradiction perhaps is best spelled out In 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse number 18, where the Bible says Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And here's the contradiction of Calvary, isn't it? The just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. The pure, innocent, clean Lamb of God is dying on the cross for unjust, hell-deserving sinners for someone like me. The contradiction of Calvary, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Calvary is the story of the day the just son of God died for an unjust sinner like me, the just for the unjust. If you're able physically tonight, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to Luke chapter 22 and verse number 63. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, They struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him when it was the just for the unjust. Father, we ask for your help tonight. As we go to the mighty word of God, I I pray that our hearts will be still before God and before the word of God. And, And tonight, I pray for your people at Fairhaven Baptist Church. Lord, this old world, as you have told us many times, just batters and beats the child of God. And, and Lord, any, anyone in this place can become weary in well-doing. And so I pray that tonight you would bring us back to Calvary, back to that great day when the Lord Jesus died for our sins. May the fact that the just died for the unjust penetrate our cold, stony hearts tonight. And, and would you please do a work that a preacher cannot do? And, and now I pray for someone who's never been saved that tonight would be the night in repentance and faith. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. So we ask you to do eternal and spiritual work in this room. For we come boldly in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. The men are holding the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and as you make your way through the Calvary story, there are two different groups of law enforcement. Of course, first there are the Roman soldiers as, as the Passover had come and the most busy week of the year in Jerusalem. Uh, the emperor way back in Rome knew the danger. Jerusalem was absolutely full of Roman soldiers. They were everywhere you look. There was always the fear that this would be the week, the spark would begin, and the great revolution against the Roman Empire would start, and so soldiers were everywhere. That day they'd play their part in the arrest and the trial of Jesus. But there was also another police force. You might call them the temple police. 
These were the ones that were under the control of the religious establishment. They were at the beck and call of Caiaphas, the high priest, and worse, his father-in-law, the former high priest, the godfather of this religious crime family, Annas himself. The temple police were their version of a Gestapo, and why there was nowhere they wouldn't go, and there was no crime they wouldn't commit, and there was no penalty that they would not use to enforce the brutality of the Annas crime family, the religious establishment. And so what are these temple police and these Roman soldiers that have arrested the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says they mock him, a word that means that they ridicule him. They play sport with him. Then the Bible says they smote him. They take whips and they begin to beat his flesh and rip it from his body. Now they blindfold him and with blindfolds over the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, they take their sticks and they begin to beat him. And as they do, they are blasphemously asking him the question. Prophesy if you're really the Messiah. Prophesy if you're really this great son of God. As we smite you with the blindfold over your eyes, prophesy who is this smote You know, they are so ignorant. They don't even know that very question is a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a week earlier that the Lord Jesus had taken his disciples and the twelve and he said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that are written concerning, uh, written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man uh, must be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted upon. They shall scourge him and put him to death and the third day he shall rise again. Little do these miscreants know that as they are blindfolding Jesus, they are beating him. And they are saying, prophesy, prophesy. Those words are literally fulfilling his prophecy. Do you know what makes the prophecy of Luke 18 all the more astounding? It only took place a week earlier, but a week earlier, Jesus was riding the crest of popularity. I mean, it wouldn't be long before he'd be riding into Jerusalem on the beast and he'd be waving their palm branches and throwing their coats in the way. And why just open to the right part of scripture and you can almost hear the cry rise out of the pages of the Bible. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And now they are beating him. Mark and Matthew say they're spitting on him. The Bible tells us the soldiers are taunting him and and yet through it all, the son of God is silent. They want him to prophesy and yet Jesus prophesies by his silence. He is eloquent by his quietness for the Bible tells us 700 years earlier, the prophecy said he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he openeth not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb so openeth he not his mouth. As they are demanding that he prophesy, little do they know his silence is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because on this day, it was the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. Why, you talk about a sham trial. Hey, you talk about a day with absolutely no justice. You know, America seems to be obsessed with justice. And and if somebody gets their feelings hurt, it just seems like, well, cry to the skies. But my friend, there never has been a day. And there never been has been an event where there was more extreme injustice than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That day he will face six examinations. He will stand before the godfather of their religion, Annas. 
He will stand before the present high priest Caiaphas. They will drag him in front of the board called the Sanhedrin. From there he will stand before the Pilate, the governor, a coward if there ever was one. From Pilate he would go to Herod, the evil, the most evil of men. From there it was one more time before Pilate. And every time Jesus is examined on this day, it is the just standing before the unjust. And an Annas was as corrupt a religious politician as ever lived. Caiaphas was nothing but a man on the, on the strings, controlled by his father-in-law. Why, when you talk about the Sanhedrin, they were yes-men for Annas and the religious crime family, the coward Pilate, the evil Herod. Every single time Jesus is dragged before the lowest of humans, And in their arrogance and their smugness, they pretend to try the creator of the universe. Like never before, it is the just for the unjust. Multiple laws will be broken on this occasion. Here's a handful of them. The Jewish law called for trials only in the day. They would ignore that. The law called for each trial to be held in a public hall. Some of these trials take place in a private house. The law demanded, not just allowed, but demanded witnesses for the defense. No one will lift a voice for Jesus. The law protected the accused until Jesus is condemned to die. All of the beatings and all of the tauntings and all of the mockeries are illegal. The law requires two days in a capital trial. It doesn't apply to the Son of God. The law demands and most importantly, that a man could not be convicted by his own testimony. And yet they are putting Jesus on the cross because he said he's the king of the Jews. For these six reasons and many others, well, everything that happens that day breaks the law. Everything that happens that day screams injustice. Every part of this sham trial is the story of the pure son of God being mistreated as the law is literally ripped to shreds. But then again, that's what you'd expect when it's the just for the unjust. Jesus is brought before Pilate in chapter 23. And and the trial doesn't get very far before Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. That phrase, I find no fault, is a legal term. The judge of the trial has just said there's nothing to contest. The judge of the trial, and you will notice he didn't proclaim Jesus as being not guilty. It is not like Pilate says, well, we all know he's guilty and we all know he did it, like seems to happen so often in America. But with a wink of the eye, well, we haven't had enough evidence to prove it. The lawyers haven't done a good enough case. No, this is not a story of Pilate saying we know he is guilty, but there's not enough here to try him. This is the story of Pilate saying there's nothing here. There is nothing to see. There is no fault in him. There is not a stain of evidence. There is not one accusation you can bring against him. He is absolutely pure and he is absolutely perfect. But somehow, despite being pronounced not, excuse the double negative, not, not guilty, no, he is pronounced innocent. Yet somehow the trial goes on, which is how it works when it's the just for the unjust. Now Jesus is brought before King Herod. 
all the way back in Luke 3 and 19. The Bible calls Herod a man of many evils. What we know from the Bible, and we certainly don't have his whole biography, Herod is an adulterer, Herod is a man of great lust, and Herod is a murderer. Dripping from the very hands of King Herod himself is the blood of that mighty prophet, John the Baptist himself. And now they bring the king of kings before this despicable, despot Herod. And Herod does exactly what you would expect such a wicked man to do. In verse number 11, he treats Jesus like a circus act. Herod, with his men of war, and you know, of all the things that happens in these two chapters to Jesus, there's just something about this that is so low. They set him at naught. You know, everywhere we turn, somebody is mocking him, somebody's beating him, somebody's thrashing him, somebody's playing sport with him. But when it comes to Herod, he manages to find a low where nobody else can go. And the Bible says this wicked tyrant is so evil and so despicable that he treats Jesus like nothing. He set him at naught. He, in effect, he is saying, don't you know whose presence you are in? You are in the palace of King Herod. Who do you think you are? It is not even as he treats Jesus. Jesus, like a slave, he treats him like he is absolutely nothing. And he mocked him. And they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. They're lampooning him now. And he sends him back to Pilate. For these two chapters, it would be hard to find a more classic picture of the just before the unjust. How is it possible that a, an adulterer slash murderer can be sitting in judgment to the holy creator of the universe? In verse number 14, Jesus is returned to Pilate, and at the end of 14, and behold, I, having examined him before you, uh, at least Pilate makes a pretense. The words Pilate uses one right after another come right out of the legal dictionary of the day. Now he says, I have examined him, a a legal term. I've made a legal inquisition here. I've looked into this. I've examined this. I have listened to the evidence that there is none, and, and, and I've examined him right in front of your eyes. Nothing here has been done in private. Nothing has been done in secret. And now for the second time, Pilate says, I find no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. What words he uses. It's not that he's not guilty. For the second time, he is innocent. And yet now he takes it to a different level. He says, these things you bring against him, they don't even touch him. I mean, it's not like, well, you know, there's a couple shady things. There isn't. There's not one word he ever spoke. There's not one place he ever went. There is not one thing he ever did that somebody could point at him with a question mark. He was so pure and so clean that he stayed away from any possibility of sin. And Pilate says, forget about evidence. Forget about any clause. You don't even have a point that can touch him. Then he says, Nor, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So there's a legal verdict. And it's not even not guilty. The legal verdict is there are no charges that are real. 
And so when you come to verse number 16, you would assume... Any normal person would assume that if the judge of the trial has just pounded the gavel down, not once but twice, and said, this man is innocent, there is not one witness, there is not one point of the law that even scratches him. You would assume verse number 16 would say, he's a free man. But Pilate said, I will therefore chastise him and release him. Excuse me. You have just said it not once but twice that he's pure and innocent. That there's not one thing he's ever done. He's never even come close. That nobody nobody can even twist anything and make it work. And so while this man is pure and clean and innocent, he hasn't done one thing. You're going to chastise him? What kind of justice is that? You know, if that's how the story ended and they chastised Jesus, that would be enough to stop and say, you talk about injustice. You talk about wrong. The innocent, pure lamb of God, you've got no business laying a finger on him. I will therefore chastise him. Pilate is saying, I I know he's not guilty. I know he's innocent. But if it'll make you happy, I'll chastise him anyway. Will that work? The just for the unjust. So now in verse 18, it's time for the religious establishment to enter the picture again. It is the religious establishment that has been stirring up the crowd. It is the religious establishment that pretty much had Pilate in the palm of her hands for political reasons. And now the political establishment is going to come to Pilate with a solution. Because at the Passover, it was a common thing to release a criminal, to show some mercy, uh, to show some respect from the Roman government to the people of Israel. And, And the obvious candidate to be set free would be the one who was completely innocent, wouldn't you think? So in verse number 18, the religious establishment, they scream, release unto us Barabbas. Barabbas. Barabbas is a robber. Barabbas is a rebel. Barabbas commits murder in an insurrection and a rebellion. We are looking at a murderer, rebel. If there was anybody in Jerusalem that belongs on a cross this day, that would be Barabbas. But somehow, Barabbas is going home for dinner that night. And Jesus goes to the cross. The just for the unjust. So what will you do with Jesus? And in verse number 21, the crowd gets involved now. And they cried. And it's not just a single cry. That cry is an incessant cry. And it's not just a soft cry. They are screaming at the top of their lungs. The ground swell grows and the people scream, crucify him, crucify him. He must be crucified. He must die and he must die today. And there is no justice. There is no fairness. Why are you going to take the innocent one and crucify him? Why do you make so many demands? And the Bible tells us in verse 23 that the voices of them, the multitude... And of the chief priests prevailed. Release Barabbas and crucified Jesus. So when we get to 23, the law doesn't matter. The trial doesn't matter. The verdict doesn't matter. Of course not. Those things don't count when it is the just for the unjust. Now in verse 25, he, Pilate, delivered Jesus to their will. 
It'll take John and Mark and Matthew to fill in the blanks from here. Jesus has led to the whole praetorium where he is stripped. The innocent, pure, modest son of God stripped of his clothes before these despicable humans. The Lord Jesus is clothed in purple. Of course, if he is a king, he needs a crown. The crown they give him is not of gold, it's a crown of thorns. The king needs a scepter, so they take a rod like we would call it a measuring stick, a yardstick, and and they stick the rod in his hand. Now the soldiers are bowing their knees. Then they take that rod when they're tired of their game and they beat him on the head. One more time, they spit on him and the Lord Jesus Christ is scourged. That great famous whipping where the flesh is ripped off of his body. The just for the unjust. As for the soldiers in verse number 34, they parted his raiment and cast lots. There are not a lot of perks of being an executioner, I suppose, then and now. One thing the executioners were allowed to do, they could take the clothing of the victim. The average Jewish man had five articles of clothes that he would wear. A turban on his head, an outer robe, an inner robe, a sash or a belt, and, and sandals on his feet. Well, as there would be four Roman soldiers that would be in charge of a crucifixion, in this case, you don't know if there are four for all three men, or four for each one of the men, but those clothes would be divided up. So one of the soldiers gets the sandals, one gets the hat, one gets the uh, uh, belt, and one gets the inner tunic, and now... And now there's that outer robe, and normally they would take a knife and slice it into four sections. But that robe was seamless. It was an impressive robe, and so they decide to cast lots for it. And little do they know that one more time, they are fulfilling scriptures. So now Jesus hangs upon that cross, and he is thirsty, the torment of insects burrowing into his open wounds. The spectators look at that naked man on the cross. They are mocking him and taunting him. And, and you and I can't even imagine how horrible it is to die on a cross. One moment they dress him as the king and now they're stripping him in disgrace. And in verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vigor. Vinegar was a very poor man's, a cheap form of booze. Perhaps it's lunchtime and these Roman soldiers are eating their humble lunch and, and drinking their, their cheap booze. And, and they are so heartless, they are so wicked. They take their booze and they put it to the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. The just for the unjust. And then there's the case of the multitude. It's one of the most fascinating studies in the book of Luke. Why, when Jesus is giving out free meals, free messages, and free miracles, the multitudes are everywhere to be found. I mean, the crowd builds past 20,000, most likely. Thousands of people. Say, what meal do we get today? What's on the menu? What miracle do I get to see today? Why, the freeloading crowd is absolutely everywhere until one day Jesus stops preaching, or I'm sorry, stops giving out free items and he starts preaching on discipleship. And the Lord Jesus managed to turn that crowd of 20,000 into 12. You know, our religious world is obsessed with how to have a big multitude. Our religious world is obsessed with church growth techniques. Well, Jesus' church growth techniques took a crowd of 20,000 and turned it into 12. 
And one of them was a devil. And now the multitudes, and excuse me, when you come to Luke 23, where, where's the guy the week earlier that was blind? Where's he? You know, the guy they let down through the roof, the lame man, and Jesus gave him new legs. Or, or I know there were 10 lepers and only one came back to thank him. Well, where were any one of those people? How, how about the lady? How about the lady whose son was raised from the dead? The man, Jairus, whose daughter was raised. I mean, where are all these people? Because as the Lord Jesus goes to Calvary, you can't find one human that lifts up their voice and says, something is wrong here. But we do see the people in verse number 35. It says they stood beholding. With a blank look on their face. We don't know what to do and we don't know what to say. They just stand there watching. They're indifferent to the injustice. They're indifferent to the abuse. They are indifferent to the evil. But that's what happens when it's the just for the unjust. In verse number 35, the rulers, the officials of the religion, the religious establishment themselves, and the rulers also with them derided him. Right to the very end now, they are sneering at him. You trace those religious leaders through the book of Luke, and you know it all began with a hypercritical spirit in their heart. And they watched Jesus as his disciples were actually eating on the Sabbath. And they were reasoning in their hearts how wrong this is. By the time you get to the middle of the book of Luke, what was in their hearts, it is now written all over their faces. And by the time you get to Calvary, there's no restraint. The hatred that started down here, that went to the head and the face, is now coming out of their mouth. And the Bible says they are deriding him, the just for the unjust. Pilate gets in one more jab, and in verse number 38, a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Oh, Pilate was mortal enemies with the religious establishment anyhow. His hands were tied through this whole thing. And as a coward, he's not going to stand up for right. So when a man would walk through the parade going to Calvary, he'd have to carry a sign. And let everybody know why he was being condemned to die. And then when he was there, that superscription would be hung over his head. Why is Jesus dying? Because he's the king of the Jews. Really. They wrote it in three languages. Greek is the language of the common man. Latin is the legal language for the Romans. And of course, Hebrews was for the Jewish people, the religious establishment. What would you expect when it was the just for the unjust? In verse number 39, it is so desperate that even one of the malefactors, the word malefactor means a very bad man. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. You know, in Matthew and Mark, it says, at least in the beginning, that both of these malefactors were mocking him. So here are two very bad men. To criminals, thieves, they are dying for their crimes. And yet with their last breath, they find a way to taunt and ridicule the Son of God. And one of them, by the time the day moves along, he goes so far to say, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. You talk about the just for the unjust. And all of a sudden, in a most amazing moment in time, for all of the injustice and all of the wickedness, here is a criminal that is so evil, he is dying for his crimes to society. 
And in verse number 42, he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. What do you know? It's Calvary's first convert. You and I join a long, long line of people and it all started with a very bad man who was dying next to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he hangs upon that cross, that very bad man, that malefactor says, I'm dying and I deserve to die. I am an unjust man. I am the guilty man. I am the one who deserves this cross. But hanging on that center cross is someone who's done nothing amiss. What Pilate said with the gavel, the malefactor confesses with his tongue. It is not that he never sinned. That goes without saying. It is not that he never committed a horrible crime. Of course he didn't. My Savior, the Lord Jesus, forget all of that. He never did one thing amiss. Hanging upon a cross, the malefactor says, I'm the sinner and he's the Savior. But the Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Sure enough, this malefactor on the the cross hanging next to Jesus believes that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. I know that because he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a thing to confess. What a thing to say. Calvary's first convert. I mean, nobody's there to preach a message to him. Nobody's there to play the instrument and give an invitation. Could I say he never got baptized and he never did some rite of religion? And there certainly was no time for him to earn heaven by his good works. His wicked works put him on that cross. And all of a sudden Jesus turns to him and says today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise, the just for the unjust. Everywhere you look, Calvary tells the story, the just for the unjust. I mean, you could even talk about Simon, the man from the Cyrenium from North Africa. Simon is in Jerusalem for the great Passover feast. I, every Jew, once in his life was supposed to go. It was a great experience. It was a great day. And, and early one morning, Simon is making his way into the city. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of visitors would come. There weren't enough rooms. People had to stay in the country. And, and you know, I'm sure that morning Simon would have said, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. Brother Mitchell could bring him back tonight. He'd say, nope, I was in the right place at the right time. And as Jesus comes out of the city carrying his crossbeam, he meets Simon and he can't go any further. And the Roman soldier tells Simon, you're going to carry the crossbeam to Golgotha. Simon knows you don't say no to a Roman soldier. Because if Simon said no, he'd be carrying his own crossbeam in a hurry. So Simon carries the crossbeam all the way to Calvary. You talk about a powerful picture. The unjust sinner, Simon, is carrying the cross of the just son of God to the place where Jesus would die for Simon's sin. It is the just for the unjust. And now the Lord Jesus hangs upon the cross and even creation plays its part. There will be a darkness over the earth for three hours. The veil of the temple is rent from the top to the bottom. Only God could do this. The earth is quaking. The graves open and the bodies of Old Testament saints arise. Until at three o'clock in the afternoon... In verse number 46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Please understand this verse. There is not one of us in this room, 
nor has there ever been a human who ever lived who had the authority to commend themselves to God. You don't get to do this, and I don't get to do this. When Stephen died, he did not say, I commend myself. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Big difference. Only the pure creator, the Lamb of God, the spotless, sinless Savior, he is the only one who has the right and the authority to commend himself to Almighty God. And having said thus in verse 46, he gave up the ghost. What a powerful phrase. The Bible doesn't say here that he died. He gave up the ghost. He breathed out his last spirit. You know, when someone normally dies on a cross, their voice gets weaker and weaker as the dehydration sets in, as the exhaustion takes over their body. And it's a miserable way to die. And their last word is barely an audible whisper, not Jesus. His last words are a cry. When somebody dies on the cross as their body is sagging under its weight, they they try to rear their neck back and get one more breath of air. Not Jesus. He bows his head because we are reminded at the cross of Calvary, the soldiers didn't kill him. The authorities didn't kill him. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. The just for the unjust. All along the way, they didn't even know what they were confessing about Christ. Of course, Pilate called him the king of the Jews. The evil religious establishment said, if he be Christ. The soldier said, if thou be the king. And the malefactor, the one who died without a savior, said, if thou be Christ. And of course, they are all correct. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the chosen of God. Jesus is the Christ. What is more, everywhere you turn in the book of Luke, Jesus invested his life in saving people. There was the demon-possessed man, Simon's mother-in-law. There was the leper, the lame man, the centurion's servant. There was the dead man, the young girl. There's Bartimaeus. There's the story of Zacchaeus. And that's just a handful of them. Everywhere you go, Jesus does good. Everywhere you go, Jesus loves people. Everywhere you go, Jesus invests his life in others. Everywhere you go, the perfect Lamb of God is in the business of seeking and saving those who are lost. And now, here he is on a cross. The just for the unjust. So what is Jesus going to say? What is he going to do? You know, along the way we're reminded that he, had he said one word to his father... There would be more than 72,000 angels that would come crashing down upon the city of Jerusalem. There is a story in the Old Testament where one angel came down against 185,000 soldiers of the mightiest army in the world. And let's just say the angel was back in heaven in time for lunch. Do you know if 72,000 angels hit that city, it would have been obliterated. To this day, you wouldn't find a rock in place. What's he going to say? Dying on a cross, most people are cursing and the profanity is unlistenable to I mean, people dying on a cross, they are cursing everything and everybody with their last breath. They are threatening the soldiers, threatening the judge. They are threatening everybody. So what is Jesus going to do? And in verse number 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
the just for the unjust. Father, forgive these soldiers and forgive these religious leaders. Forgive this spineless multitude. Forgive Pilate and Herod. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, 12, that he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Oh, oh, the word of God tells us had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Of course they wouldn't have. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because when we come to Calvary, we finally get a taste of how wicked and evil we really are. We finally see how dark and dismal our sins truly are. And when we come to Calvary for the first time, we begin to understand the enormous price that had to be paid for our sins. And and yet no matter how long we spend at Calvary, we have to walk away as humans unable to grasp the entire thing when it was the just for the unjust. That's why tonight, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, there are many, many reasons to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, but you'll never find a better one than the fact that the just Lamb of God died for an unjust sinner like you and an unjust sinner like me. And all of a sudden, when you pay a visit to Calvary, you begin to see how evil religion truly is. When religion comes along and says there is a prayer you pray, money that you give, there is a work that you do, there is something you say, something you wear, there's a place that you visit, but there is some work of righteousness that you can do to earn eternal life. No wonder more than a hundred plus times the New Testament tells us in one form or another, not by works of righteousness which we have done. When you go to Calvary, You can only bow your head and say, nothing in my hand I bring. There is no prayer. There is no work. There is no deed. There is no goodness. There is no money. There's nothing I have. If I die and end up in hell as an unjust sinner, it is more than justice. It is more than right. That's why when someone comes to Calvary, they don't scream for their rights and they don't scream for justice. When somebody comes to Calvary and they begin to get a taste as to how pure and holy the Son of God is and how dark and dismal their sins are. When someone comes to Calvary, you'll find someone pleading for mercies. You'll find someone looking for grace. The just for the unjust. And what about the child of God here tonight? Remember we started, when you're weary and you're faint in your minds, go to Calvary. The just for the unjust. Years ago, a missionary had returned from the land of India and was at a missions conference at a church in the U.S. And someone walked up to this missionary. He spent now 40 plus years in the country of India. And somebody walked up with the usual question that you usually ask a missionary, you know, what's the most dangerous thing that ever happened? And of course, if you come from a place like India, you're supposed to have a tiger story or a cobra story or an elephant story or who knows what, but you're supposed to have one. This old missionary said, well, you know, for all those other stories, the most dangerous thing that ever happened to me in India had happened more than once. And it was those times when my heart got cold. He said, on the outside, I was still ministering to people. And on the outside, I was still preaching. On the outside, I was doing the whole job that I was supposed to be doing. And on the outside, nobody else would know because the work was being done and it all looked right. But he said, my heart was stone cold. 
So he said, when those days would come, he said, I would take my Bible and I'd take a walk outside of my village. He said, there was a hill that overlooked the town. He said, I'd climb that hill and sit under a tree. And he said, I began to read the end of Matthew, then the end of Mark and the end of Luke and the end of the book of John. And he said, I would just read it and then reread it and then read it again. And he said, I stayed under that tree as long as it took for Calvary to warm my heart. Exactly. Because lest you become weary, lest I become faint, and it's not even in our actions, but in our thinking, in our minds. The Bible says, consider him. Consider the contradictions. The just for the unjust. Father, we 